The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 3, 17 through 4, 1. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Listen, I know it's hot. I'm hot up here. My son asked me not to raise up my hands anymore because I sweat and it's embarrassing him, but I can't stop that, okay? Either one of those things. Listen, I want to do two things this morning. All right. First, I want to show you the radical message of equality that Paul preaches here, that in our text this morning, this message is there in seed form 2,000 years ago, which is still growing today. The cries in our streets for justice and equity for all are an outgrowth of Christianity. This will require us to do some historical study so that we can read Paul's words in the correct context. And then secondly, I want to show you how this message relates to the way you work, how you treat those you work with. This will be the uh, practical side of the sermon this morning. So if you could open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to zero in on verses 22 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm going to begin by stating the obvious this morning. Paul, well, if you've got, it depends on what version of a Bible you've got. Paul starts out by either saying bondservants or slaves. The ESV, the newer ESV translation translates the word, it's a Greek word called doulos. Sometimes it gets translated slaves, but the ESV translates it's bondservants in order to help us modern readers separate the word slaves, listen, from shadow slavery or race-based slavery that our country was founded upon because there is a big difference. See, when our ears hear the word slavery, we most likely think of the horrific transatlantic slave trade. That is not what Paul wants you to think about. That is not what Paul is addressing here. Obviously, that happened a lot later after Paul wrote this. When Paul wrote this, hear me, slavery was a universally accepted practice and a reality in every culture around the world. In fact... Historians tell us that one-third of the city of Colossae, 
that, were, that this letter is written to, one-third of the city, one-third of the citizens would have been slaves. So Paul is writing into a city, into a church, where one-third of the people would have been in slavery. In the Greco-Roman world where Paul was writing, slavery was not race-based at all. It was actually legal for a Roman citizen to sell their child into slavery in order to pay off their debts. You could also, and many did, sell yourself into slavery to pay off your debts. Slaves were also acquired by the Roman Empire as they expanded and conquered surrounding nations. So hear, hear me this morning. Slavery was awful, but it was different than what was practiced in early America. In fact, this is interesting. Slavery existed in every level of Greco-Roman society. Accountants and physicians were, all, were often slaves. Slaves of Greek origin were highly educated. Whereas unskilled slaves or those sentenced to slavery as punishment, they worked on farms and mines and at mills. Okay, so we're talking about something very different from what we practice in early America than what was practiced in the Greco-Roman world. But here is where ancient slavery and American slavery coalesce. Slaves were still considered property under Roman law. And therefore, they had no legal personhood. Hear me. That means slaves had no rights. They could be bought and sold. They were commodities. They could be treated harshly without any fear of legal ramifications upon the owner. And in our world, in our text today, you see the Apostle Paul say two things that absolutely turned the world upside down. And I might add, remember, Paul is writing to a small church, most likely around 80 or so people, living inside and under an enormous, powerful Roman empire. Think about it. What could this little church do in the face of that huge Roman empire? Well, Paul says, as he's been saying the last few weeks, cultural change starts in the home. Cultural change starts in the church. Model the kingdom of God virtues in your home, husband and wives, parents and children, masters and bond servants. You are never going to change a culture if you don't change the culture of your home and church first. And here's the two things that absolutely has changed the world. And Christianity is the only religion that has made these claims. The only religion on the face of the planet that has made these claims. One, you can see in verse 24 and 25, completely revolutionary idea. God, the only God, shows no partiality. Look at verse 24. It says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. Look, and there is no partiality. Yes, disparities of outcome 
exist in every society. There are and there were bond servants and slaves, slaves and masters. There have always been the rich and the poor, those with power and those without, the successful and not successful, the haves and the haves nots. And yet here is the reality. In the midst of that disparity of outcome, God does not show any partiality. Now, what does that mean? The word partiality translates a Greek word that literally meant, quote, receiving the face. This Greek word is a literal translation of a Hebrew idiom. It means treating people on the basis of their appearance, how they look, how they dress, their skin color, their culture, their status or level in society. We would say today, the car they drive, the house they live in, the neighborhood they live in. And Paul says, this is a radical notion in that time. Unlike all the Greek gods, all the Egyptian gods, all the Eastern gods, Jesus is not like that. Every other worldview at that time said, if you were rich, you were rich because you were favored by the gods. If you were in power, you were in power because you were favored by the gods. If you were poor or marginalized, you're poor and marginalized because you've been cursed by the gods. But Christianity was different. Jesus came as a poor and marginalized person. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means Jesus doesn't choose, nor the heavenly father, choose people or love people on the basis of their status in society. He shows no partiality. That means the amount of power, influence, or wealth that you possess does not mean God favors you, does not mean God has smiled upon you, nor does poverty, obscurity, or marginalization mean that God has forgotten you. I just cannot stress to you how revolutionary this concept was when Paul wrote it. And secondly, in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says to masters, those in power, to those who providence has smiled upon, he says this, quote, treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you have a master in heaven. This statement absolutely turned the world upside down. Paul speaking into a culture that said slaves had no rights. And he's saying, you are absolutely wrong. Slaves have a right to be treated, quote, justly and fairly. Now, I know for us, this sounds like just an complete, obvious reality. Now, you know why it seems obvious to us? There's only one reason it seems obvious to you that every person deserves justice and fairness. There's only one reason. And that one reason is because the values of Christianity have worked their way into our Western culture and now we take them as a given. They are not given in Eastern culture. They are not given in other cultures of the world. Did you know that much of the world still practices forms of slavery today? 
It is estimated that between 21 and 46 million people today are still enslaved. And that is entirely in nations that do not have a Christian understanding of the human being having inherent dignity, rights, and values. Now you will often hear critics of Christianity say that, quote, the Bible condones slavery. That is just objectively not true. Slavery is never condoned or blessed in scripture. However, the Bible was written into a very specific culture where slavery was commonplace and Christianity was this tiny minority. And instead of stating outright that slavery should be immediately banned, which would have been immediately dismissed by the dominant culture, it chooses another approach. Listen, undermine slavery from the inside out. Change the identities of the slave and the slave owner. You notice how he says, oh, you own slaves? Well, don't forget, you have a master in heaven. What's he saying? You're a slave too. What's he saying to slaves? You have rights, you have dignity, you have value. You should be treated with justice and fairness. You have value too. You have honor too. Later he's gonna say, you have an inheritance too. He's, even though there's great disparities in the culture, he's saying you're equal in the house of God. You're equal in the eyes of God. And secondly, he seeks to change the hearts of the slave and the slave owner and put them into community together where they will begin to see the evils and atrocities and injustices of slavery. And then Christians will eventually abolish the entire enterprise. Wilbur, or Wilberforce and on. I, I'm not going to get into that. 2,000 years ago, Paul says, masters, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Jesus taught that we were to, quote, treat others as you would be treated. Can slavery exist in a just and fair society? Can say, slavery exist if you treat others as you would like to be treated? Could you actually own another person? Would you like to be owned? No, of course not. Now, these ideas are deeply Christian and they've changed the world even though many who claim to be Christian didn't work out these implications at the time. Now, let me get personal and practical this morning. There's also another way to look at this text and that is through the lens of work. And even today, corporate executives, business owners, and management are often pitted against the working class. You have those in power versus those without power. From that perspective, we could easily say that Paul here is talking to corporate, to bosses, to employers and employees, to the corporate class and the labor class, to the powerful and the powerless. And taking this perspective, we can see how practical this text becomes for us. We just replaced the word bond servants with employees. And we have employees, look at verse 
22, employees obey in everything those who are your earthly bosses, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but look, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, obey in everything. This command is the same command that was given in the context of the home to wives and husbands and to children and parents. And it means obey in everything that doesn't violate your conscience or the word of God. Again, we're, we're servants of Jesus first. Jesus is our first boss, our first master. So we see that serve him first, our boss is second. But as long as our employers are not asking us to break commandments or to violate our conscience, we obey them. Not by way of eye service, he says, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Paul here is saying that we should be working hard, Christian. Not so that we can be seen as working hard, not just to please your boss so that you can get a raise, but because you, quote, fear the Lord. Do you see what Paul is saying? Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily. Underline that. Circle that. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, so many people think this is the only time we worship. We worship when we come together and when we sing and when we read and when we preach and when we do Bible studies. But Paul says, whatever you do, do unto the Lord. Whether you're picking up trash, whether you're cleaning toilets, whether you're teaching students, whether you're balancing budgets, assembling parts, building homes, flipping burgers, selling shoes, practicing law, serving people, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, what does it mean to work heartily? It means to work with your whole heart, to be full-hearted, to be passionate, to be devoted, to be committed, to work hard. Hear me. Christians should be the hardest, most passionate workers in our city. We should be waking up every day five minutes before our alarms go off, filled with a sense of purpose and ready to attack our day. And when we get to work, we should be doing our jobs more passionately and more compassionately than anyone else. Why? Why, Justin? Because we work for Jesus and Jesus has already worked for us. Jesus has already, see, some people work hard because they're trying to build an identity. They're trying to become su successful. They're trying to become known in their field. <coughs> but Jesus has already worked for the Christian and earned for us an identity that can never be lost. He's already earned for us an inheritance that can never be lost. 
our quote unquote eternal retirement account is already maxed out by Jesus. So now we don't go to work to build an identity. We don't go to work to serve ourselves. We go to work to serve Jesus. Now you might say, I have many people that this is so new to them. They think Christianity is just about going to heaven. They don't understand it's about this real world too. You might say, well, how do I serve Jesus at my job? Like wear a Christian tie? Do I wear my Christian shirt? Passing out business cards? No, here's one way. Paul says right from our text, here's one way you serve Jesus at your job, whether that's in the home, whether that's as an entrepreneur, whether that's in the city, wherever that's at. Here's one way you serve Jesus there. Work harder and better than anyone else. Think about what Jesus has done for you in his life, death, and resurrection. Think about Jesus as your employer. How would that change the way you approach and execute your duties at your job? See, listen, folks, when we work for Jesus, work becomes a form of worship to God. Work becomes a form of worship to God. So one, you work harder and better than anybody else. That's how you work for Jesus. Secondly, you're going to work, listen, not just to bring home a paycheck, but you're going to work to make the world, your industry, our city, a more just and fair place to live and work. Just and fair. Too many people have some kind of otherworldly faith. They don't see how the gospel is meant to change our workplaces, our cities, our communities. Here's one example. A Christian owned a car dealership, a used car dealership. He became a Christian. He heard the gospel. He started looking at his business from a Christian perspective. He started running the numbers and he realized the system that he had set up was an unjust system. He didn't know it, but it was benefiting white, middle-class and upper-class men. How? They had a you know, they'd set, the, you know, like this. They'd set the price on the car, but everybody knows that's not the price you should pay. So you go in and here's the deal. White, middle-class and upper-class men like to debate. They like to argue. They like to go back and forth over the price. They get a certain satisfaction over not paying sticker price. And they went and they would argue and white, middle-class, upper-class men were getting a, far, a, a car for far cheaper than other people from other races were getting. And they found out Black females were getting the worst deal because they didn't negotiate as, as often and as, as well and as adamantly. And he looked at the system and he says, oh my goodness, the rich, wealthy white men are, absolute, are actually getting a better deal because of these black women are getting the worst deal. They're actually subsidizing the wealthy man's purchase. This isn't a just, this isn't a just system. So he changed his whole business philosophy and he put, you know, you've seen it sometimes, the sticker on the window, that's the price. And guess what? It hurt his profits. 
And guess what? He was okay with that because he was working out of the biblical framework of being a just and fair business owner. The gospel impacted the way he did his business in the world. It drives me crazy when Christians say things like, social justice doesn't have any place in the church. So you're telling me Christians should be okay with injustice? Listen to the prophet Isaiah. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove your evil deeds from before my eyes. Listen, cease to do evil, okay? Stop doing evil. We'd all say amen, but listen to this. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's not enough just to be not racist. Seek justice. Plead for the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. I wanted those in my neighborhood to hear that. I had to get it out there. Listen, I believe. And that doesn't mean we agree with everything in that quote unquote movement. I don't, I'm not going to go there. Listen, I believe that God is raising up some people in this church to seek justice and correct oppression. That God is calling you and equipping you to bring justice to the fatherless and widows in our church and in our city. And that isn't going to happen by me just standing up here and preaching the gospel. It's going to happen by preaching the gospel and putting our work boots on and getting to work in and on the systems and structures of our society that are broken. And for those of you who think that somehow I'm a Marxist because I say that, let me quote Martin Luther, not King Jr., Martin Luther, way before Karl Marx. The reformer, Martin Luther, took Psalm 147, 13, which says, For God strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. And he asked, how exactly does God do those things? How does God strengthen the bars of the city? This is how God does it. Through city planners and architects. Through politicians who pass good laws to protect our city. How does he bless our children within our midst? Through the work of te teachers and pediatricians. How does he make peace within our borders? By means of good lawyers and good policemen. How does he, quote, fill us with the finest of wheat? Through good farmers and good factory workers and good restaurant owners. Our professions or our vocations, Luther said, are like the masks that God wears when he cares for our world. 
when Martin Luther said this, when we pray the Lord's prayer and we ask God to give us this day our daily bread, he does not get, he does give us our daily bread. He does it by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into the bread, the person who prepared our meal. All of these are in play when God answers our prayer for daily bread. This is how God is at work in our world. Through Christians doing their professions and their vocations in a God-honoring way unto the Lord. How is justice? Justice isn't going to just happen by praying to God for justice. It's going to be praying and working it out in our city. So one, you got to work If you're working to the Lord, you work harder and better than everybody else. Two, you're working to make your world, your industry, and our city a more just and fair place to live and work. And three, you must remember when you go to work in the morning, you are going to work as a missionary. Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. When you dress yourself for work every day, you are contextualizing yourself to be a missionary to your workplace. You are a missionary sent by God to share the gospel with those around you. Now, how's God going to change our world to be more just and fair and to better represent his kingdom? He's going to send Christians with the gospel into every sphere and segment of our society. Nurses taking the gospel into the hospitals. Executives taking the gospel into their organizations. Teachers bringing the gospel into their classrooms. Now, I hope you know, I don't mean... You start preaching, bring a soapbox in and stand up, gather all your employees around. I got a good one here. No. You don't even, not even necessarily leading Bible studies. No, inviting people to be your friend. How about that? Inviting them over for dinner, caring about them, knowing them, and then sharing the gospel with them one-on-one inviting them into church, inviting them into community, speaking the good news of Jesus to them whenever we see an opportunity, standing with them. Listen, this is how we make disciples, plant churches, and seek to renew our city. Some of y'all didn't know what I meant by renew our city apparently. I didn't mean just hold revivals. I meant bring about human flourishing in our city, making our city a more just and fair and equitable place as we make disciples. James tells us you can't just pray for somebody when they're hungry. Oh, you're hungry? Oh, brother, I'll pray for you. No, get in your cabinet and get some food and feed them. Christians, it's time for us to get to work if we haven't been at work. It's time for us to actually do the good works that have been prepared beforehand for us. 
to step into these difficult situations and these nuanced positions and not be afraid of what the far right or the far left is going to say about us. We've never fit in. The world's, Jesus said, the world's going to hate you. Get used to it. I pray that this church wouldn't just preach some kind of gospel that's for Sunday morning, but we believe a gospel that's renewing the whole cosmos. That Jesus is at work renewing all things, not just us individually. Let me pray for us. We're hot. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that your people would see how revolutionary it was at the time and still how relevant it is in this moment. We don't need to move on or move past your word. It spoke literally a revolution 2,000 years ago and it's still revolutionary today. Would you help us believe your gospel that Jesus did the work for us on the cross to purchase our salvation, but also to turn us into missionaries that were sent out to make our world a better place. We'll never find a home on this earth. We'll never find a political party that we sit, sit nicely and neatly into it. May we push away from those and reject those. And the only label we keep is the cross of Jesus Christ, that we are under your banner and the banner of which is love. And Father, we... We're reminded of that every week as we come to your supper, as we come to your table. This is what unites us. Not politics, not skin color, not socioeconomic status. What unites us is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Many different becoming one in Christ. And so today we come to you with our hands open to receive that grace that makes us into this this body of Christ. Would you bless it? Would you be here with us? The night that you betrayed, you said, take this, my body, and you broke the bread, and you said, this is my body that's been broken for you, and take this and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant that's been poured out for many. So we take it, and we eat it, and we drink it this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.